You're listening to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Explaining why these selfless acts are actually advantageous is important. Evolution is a slow and unguided process. Well, I'm Canadian and this is the school I go to and this is how much I love my culture. Let me share this with you. Presented by Henry Standage. Hey, welcome to the Western Science Speaks podcast. Today we're talking with Nigel Blamey from the Department of Earth Sciences. Nigel is able to articulate on a bunch of interesting issues. In this podcast, we talk about the state of mining in 2019, how his understanding of liquid and gas leads him toward exploring new, interesting energy supplying methods. And to finish, we get to experience the world premiere of his band. So stick around. Here's the combo. This last half century, the narrative surrounding mining has centered around that while it's still lucrative, it's facing upcoming issues as an industry. Can you attest to what those challenges were and are, and how the mining industry has responded to those challenges? Well, if you go back, certainly 50-odd years ago, it was the best ore deposits were already discovered because they're close to the surface. Um, the highest grades were also available at that point, and when we look now, the best material's gone, Ore deposits closest to the surface have also been uh, discovered. And now we sit with a problem where we have to find deeper ore deposits, um, the ore deposits of lower grade. And uh, also back then we had uh, the issue of trying to find things that were close to where we had infrastructure. In other words, railway line to be able to get ores um, out to the mill, uh, roads into the place. But now we find that there's we're looking for the the lost deposits, shall we say, those that have not been discovered at this point. So we need to get smarter about it. Uh, we've got lower grades to deal with, higher tonnages in many cases. The advantage is technology is improving. So we have better uh, ways about finding ore deposits using geophysics, uh, geochemistry, um, and improving our models on how we think these ore deposits formed and as a result of that being able to use that to our advantage and find uh, new ore deposits. Uh, one of the other problems we've had in the industry is, I won't say it's a problem, but it's more one of the things that we've been facing uh, from the mining industry perspective is the legislation is changing. Uh, 50 odd years ago uh, somebody could establish a mine they didn't worry too much uh, about tailings more of a case of cost whereas now one wants to reclaim areas and be able to one needs to be more cognizant of the environmental impacts and return the ground as much as possible to the original condition or close to the original condition in which it was found however there's been a number of cases for example in uh, Nunavut where mining practices have resulted in helping the ecology. So though they've done a number of mining, uh, mines have gone in. Uh, for example, there are uh, places where they've had to block off the ocean, mine, and now uh, flood those extinct mines. Or, and uh, this provides habitat now for fish during the winter when it's all iced over. So 
depending where you are, there's new things that are happening, new ways of going about mining that uh, have actually ended up with positive environmental impacts. Of course, some of them not always positive, but uh, we've been fortunate in some cases there are. Now, you brought up infrastructure, and so does that mean that there's just less stuff to build so that mining's impacted negatively from that? When you bring up railways and roads, I mean, we don't need as much ore as we needed during the Industrial Revolution. No, not necessarily. It's a case of when people used to go prospecting 50-odd years ago, it was easy to go out into the field and uh, drive to an area and go prospecting. Uh, what is prospecting? In other words, looking for ore deposits. So you send a geologist into the field and see what he can find. But uh, now it's a case of one has to get smarter. We use airborne geophysics to try and help uh, locate uh, new ore bodies. And as a result of that, uh, we have to put in new roads sometimes. The best stuff, as I say, has now been found. So... Uh, trying to find new ore deposits, we have to be inventive. Right. Work smarter, not harder. Exactly. And of course, with the newer, with lower grades, bigger tonnage, get the same amount of metal, sometimes more. But now you, you have to reduce your costs and be able to extract this. And that's where new technologies help us a lot. All right, well, let's go into your work there. What types of metals are you looking for in your research? And how do you distinguish the value of different rocks? Most of my research is involved in either gold or base metals. When I say base metals, I'm referring to copper, lead, and zinc. Uh, a lot of my gold research goes anything from the Archean, that is pre-2.7 billion years, uh, doing research around there, for example, up in Yellowknife. Other different ore deposit styles I'm looking at that are gold-hosted would be fairly modern material. Things are up. When I say modern, I'm referring to um, 10 million years, 20 million years. And there the, the way the ore formed is quite different to back as it was billions of years ago. And different rocks. The other thing that's happening is some of the more modern ones get eroded and we no longer see their expression in the geological record. A lot of my research has been on uh, carlin type gold deposits where during the Cretaceous we had uh, intrusive rocks bringing in hydrothermal fluids, depositing gold. And then during the Eocene, we've had additional gold being deposited from hydrothermal fluids that have used the exact same conduits to introduce gold into these deposits. So you end up now with a gold deposit that has been hit more than once and really enriches the gold that way. A quick look at your research page on Western, the word geothermal is everywhere. Can you just explain what that word means and how you use tools in the realm of geothermals to analyze fluid and gas? To me, I see geoth the word geothermal as falling into three categories. The first one, when I say geothermal, I'm talking things you can now generate electricity from those high temperatures. We're talking 200, 300 degrees Celsius, and good examples of that would be New Zealand, the geysers, California, where magmatic intrusive bodies have provided the heat. And now we can actually generate electricity from it. Um, as I say, New Zealand, great example. Other places, Indonesia, Japan. So those are the hottest fluids from which we can generate electricity. The next category 
I would say falls into home heating and aquaculture. So for example, in Oregon, they're actually using fluids that are below 100 degrees Celsius, piping it to actually warm the roads. And you have these copper pipes through the um, surface of the roads and it keeps it ice free during the winter. So also home heating is a fair amount, especially in the United States. And um, you can actually keep reduce your electric consumption by using this geothermal fluid that is available. Um, the third category is then what we would hear they call geothermal, but it's more of a heat pump. So in other words, you would use fluid, uh, pump it around a pipe that is buried in the ground. During the winter, um, the ground's temperature is warmer than the ambient conditions, so you actually provide heat assist to your house. Um, whereas in the summer, when it's 30 degrees Celsius, as it is today, um, it's actually providing cooling. So it's a heat pump transferring heat and between the house and the ground. So that's what a lot of people hear when they talk geothermal. That's really what they're meaning. Mm -hmm. From what you just said there, it sounds like geothermal comes from using what's available naturally from where you live. Correct. Right. How does Canada differ that way from some places in the States? In the States, there's considerably more volcanism that has taken place, intrusive bodies. Um, we do have very similar geology on the BC side. Com it compares to Oregon, um, Nevada. So there is the Mega Creek geothermal field, for example, that has not been accessed at the moment but it's a potential geothermal source that could be used in the future to generate electricity. The problem with that one um, is uh, trying to get adequate fluids through the rock. Um, it's basically very tight rock. So as a result of that, you can't get the fluids through it to be able to extract that same fluid uh, when it's now 300 degrees Celsius. So, but when you're getting out towards the East Coast, we uh, here in Canada, as well as in the United States, the East Coast are basically um, geothermal. The geothermal ter term there is really um, heat pumps rather than actually deriving electricity from it. What tools do you bring to the table in your research that gives you your own unique lens? I specialize in fluid inclusion gas analysis. And what I refer to there is Rocks and minerals do trap fluids that once existed, and these fluids have uh, dissolved salts and dissolved gases inside them. I have here at Western a mass spectrometer system for analyzing the fluid inclusions quantitatively. And uh, from the different gas ratios and concentrations, there's a lot that I can glean from that data that I generate. So I can tell whether something is a magmatic fluid whether it's been in resonant in the crust for a long time as a basinal fluid, or whether it's a meteoric fluid such as from a river or lake or rainfall. Then I can identify processes such as boiling, condensation, or mixing of fluids. Um, can look at redox. Um, one of the other key things that I do, which is different to everybody else, as I do it quantitatively and analyze for the gas H2S, 
I'm able to work out gold metal solubility uh, in hydrothermal fluids because the H2S combines with gold and makes it soluble to transport it, which is actually a very key uh, part of research into gold deposits. So your tools, you're able to profile these fluids, basically. You're able to look at its attributes and then look at its potential upside when you're talking about solubility with gold. Yeah, for example, I can say this particular fluid here is not good for gold um, solubility. Or conversely, um, this is an ideal fluid for transporting base metals. And uh, or there's too much H to wear, so you're not going to transport uh, base metals in it, but it'll be good for gold. So yeah. it's, it's actually very valuable the information one can get from it. Right. How has the interpretation of atmospheric oxygen changed in geological time? A lot of the original research work, and it's fantastic work done by Dick Holland and Bob Burner, um, they were looking at the modeling of how oxygen had changed. Up until that point, we said we see fossils in the geological record to the beginning of the Cambrian, and after that, deeper in time, we don't see these hard-bodied fossils anymore. But was there oxygen? It's a good question. It isn't until, I think it's the Ordovician that we see charcoal. So we say oxygen had to be sufficient to allow fires to exist. But going back in time, it's been quite a challenge. And the work done by Bob Berner and Dick Holland uh, presented models uh, simulated on the computer to say, this is how much we think there was back then. The next step forward, uh, a lot of the work, research work done on redox sensitive elements and isotopes. And here I refer to Tim Lyons, uh, Noah Planavsky, and others. Um, they have said, okay, from redox sensitive elements, we are determining this is how much should be there. Right. Put, putting limits on how much oxygen should be there. Hold up there. So when you say redox elements, some elements, depending on how much oxygen is available, will change their valence state. Manganese, for example, iron, iron exists in the Fe2 plus and Fe3 plus valence states. And what's the significance of that change? If we go back in time, deep time to about 2.7 billion years, um, we find that pyrite, in other words, fool's gold, was being transported in the rivers as a detrital mineral. And this is because iron was captured, there, was then present in the Fe2 plus state. Um, today, we don't have iron being transported in rivers because there's so much oxygen around. Compared to back in the Archean, there was no oxygen around, or very little. So through time, oxygen has evolved and it's basically as a result of photosynthetic um, cyanobacteria, blue-green algae. But it's really, it's the redox sensitive elements that uh, the research has gone up one level to say we have a better constraint in what we think was there at the time. More recently, the research work that I've been doing through gas analysis has been able to go and look at uh, how much oxygen there was uh, using halite, which is a mineral. I was about to bring this up. <laughs> using rock salt that actually grows at the interface between brine and atmosphere. 
Well, so, yeah, we talked about this before. Keep going. I'm not. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> now, why this is significant is the previous work, people have asked me, where did that material come from? Because I myself didn't collect it. Uh, it's from sediments, marine sediments uh, from the ocean. The material I'm collecting is basically at that contact between the atmosphere uh, and the brine. As a result of that, I'm able to sample some of the atmosphere and analyze it directly in the mass spectrometer by actually analyzing oxygen molecules, nitrogen molecules, argon, and other gases that are present in trace quantities. So I'm getting a glimpse at a certain period of time but unfortunately only when halides or rock salt is precipitating. So I, I do not have oxygen values throughout the geological record. I can only get it at time periods when actually halide is precipitating. You know people who go to Kanye West concert, the musician, they bring a Ziploc bag and they zip it up after, and it's gone for as much as $2,000 on eBay air from the concert. But you're talking about atmosphere from, how far back are we saying? Uh, I'm talking, the, my 2016 paper is from 800 million years ago. The, <laughs> the big question people have always posed to me is, how comfortable am I that that was the original signal that was present? Has the material not been modified? And I have a screening protocol that I use to determine the best material and you're actually looking for primary structures that this has not been dissolved and as a result of that um, I'm fairly confident in the data that I've got. So from 800 million years I'm estimating the oxygen was about 11%. Today we breathe 21% oxygen from the atmosphere. Yeah, so yeah, it's in my notes that we've doubled the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere. Yeah. And is there a theory behind that? Is it something that's still a mystery? What's the cause? It's still been hotly debated, but uh, I would say photosynthetic life is a key part to this, to be able to produce that amount of oxygen. Uh, because when you compared to the Archean, when there was no photosynthetic life around, and now we have abundant photosynthetic uh, life, uh, it's been the photosynthesis of plants that have actually resulted in the oxygen we breathe today. How can we understand mass extinction events from a gas perspective? A lot of the research work that's been done on mass extinctions, or the geochemistry that's been done, has been looking at stable isotopes, been looking at uh, trace elements to understand or gleam from the rock what has actually happened that resulted in life being completely wiped out. A good example of this is the end Permian mass extinction where about 250 million years ago 90 plus percent of the species in the ocean got wiped out. And the question is what has actually happened back then? Um, is evidence to show that carbon dioxide was released from volcanoes, caused greenhouse gas buildup, that caused um, methane to be released from gas hydrates and um, the methane then is an even more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2 and as a result of that we had super greenhouse conditions that the oceans warmed too much 
and oceanic life got wiped out. So from my perspective, I'm now looking at the number of these mass extinction events to be able to say, what can we learn that actually happened to life as a result of, did the gases get involved in the mass extinction? Are they a function of the mass extinction? Or did they cause the mass extinction? We still don't know the answer yet. Mm -hmm. But there's a number of mass extinctions we know of, for example, the end of the Cretaceous, that was caused by an asteroid that struck the planet. But um, some of the other ones, we don't have the evidence for um, an asteroid strike. Other things have happened, and it looks like um, heating, for example, is a key one, but we really need to do a lot more research on this. When I think of mass extinction, my mind doesn't think about gas. It thinks about tsunamis or like an asteroid strike in the Earth. So what would a mass extinction from gas look like? Well, the big question again is, is the mass extinction driving the change of the gases or the change of the gases driving the mass extinction? That's one of the key and things. climate change would surely fall into this. Well, there's a number of man-made things that are happening. There's a number of natural things that happen. If we're looking at something like the end Cretaceous, if we're looking at the end Permian mass extinction at 250 million years, that really was driven by carbon dioxide from volcanoes. Mm. So it, we ended up with the ocean being warmed to the condition where life was struggling to survive, or certain species were certainly battling to survive. Now, a lot of people wouldn't know that you and a couple of other professors here at the school actually have a band. So, I was thinking for the outro music, we'd put a little shine on you guys. I'm fine with that. With that. Right. All right. What's the band name again? We didn't actually give ourselves a name, but we recorded and um, had a lot of fun doing so. Okay. But I, can in, I can send you the MP3 for that. All right, uh, that's it from Western Science Speaks podcast. And one, two, three, here's the band.